Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, Even in Desperation, Trust. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 17, 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, much has been made of that verse. And what's significant here is that there is a difference between a test and a temptation. I know that in the Greek language, it's the same word for both. But nonetheless, the difference between those two ideas is incredibly important. To tempt someone is to entice them to do evil. I mean, think of it in terms of the warnings that the father in the book of Proverbs gives to his son. You know, it's there in the beginning of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1.10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent, says the father. And then he gives the son an example. You know, if they say, come, let us lie and wait for blood. Well, the scenario the father has in mind is very much like the temptation of a modern urban teenager that he might feel to join a gang and pursue a life of violence. The father says, you've got to resist that enticement. And then he gives his sons weapons to resist. Now, getting back to James 1.13. God should never be thought of in terms of the young ruffians who are trying to entice the young man to enter into a life of violence. And furthermore, whatever evil there is in this world, God never, never entices anyone to break his law or to run after unrighteousness. Let me repeat that. God never entices anyone to sin. But God does test us, and testing is a process by which we discover what really exists in our hearts. Let me suggest an example. You're in a hurry. You're driving down a major highway. Somebody cuts you off, going right into your lane. Suddenly, your anger wells up inside of you, and you shout, you idiot! Now, look, God is sovereign over all things, and he rules this world, and he could easily have prevented that driver from doing that thing. But he's permitted it. Indeed, he has led you into that situation, not because he was enticing you to shout in anger, but rather he was testing your heart. What's in there? But you might protest, I mean, God already knows what's in there. Yeah, he does. But you don't. And God wants you to face the anger that's in your heart. Now, let's turn it the other way around. God tests us, but we are never to test God. Because testing God is not about finding out what's in God's heart. I mean, God has revealed his attributes to us. Testing God is a statement that we don't know if God can be trusted. It's to question God's righteousness or to question his integrity. Well, all of that will make sense in just a moment, but for now, let's get to our study in Exodus. We've come to Exodus 17, which may feel like history repeating itself. Indeed, you know, there are liberal scholars who sometimes argue that Exodus 17, you know, must be the product of a different author. They say because Exodus 15, you know, the people are without water and they bitterly complain against Moses. And then in Exodus 17, the same thing happens over again. And so predictably, liberal scholars argue that this is the same event remembered differently or that it was altered over the years. And then the editor that gave us the final copy of the book of Exodus simply put these two traditions in the book, not knowing that they're actually the same event. Now, (laughs) that makes an assumption, doesn't it? It assumes that once people learn a lesson on one occasion, they never repeat their error again. Now, here's what I've observed. I've never met that person that never repeats his errors. 
All of us, when we've sinned, are likely to sin in the same way again. And it's not until our sins become so grievous to us that we cry out to God, asking him to send his Holy Spirit and give us power to overcome, that we stop doing the same sins over and over again. So let's remind ourselves of Exodus 15. Israel had gone three days from the Red Sea. The wilderness was unbearably hot, and they're suffering from dehydration. And instead of asking Moses to go to the great God and appeal to him on their behalf, they start complaining bitterly. And at that time, when God turned undrinkable water into sweet water, God also instructed them. He said, be obedient to your God. God's going to bless you. Now, that then was the beginning of their journey to Mount Sinai. It was in a place called the wilderness of Shur. Now they're in the wilderness of sin. And they're getting closer to their destination. God's providing food every day, but water remains a precious commodity. So to Exodus 17:1-2, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So moving on from the wilderness of sin by stages doesn't mean now that Israel has yet left that inhospitable place. Rather, it means they're traveling through it stage by stage. And I take that to mean that they make a journey and they set up a camp, and then they move to the next stage. Now, we don't know exactly how long that process took place, but if we go forward to Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, we read, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And so it took them three months to get to Sinai. And so however long the stages were that are described in Exodus 17, we might assume that they lasted, you know, several weeks. You know, perhaps the bulk of the three months were taken up in the wilderness of sin. We don't know. But it's in the second part of verse 1 that really we should catch our attention. The passage says they moved according to the command of the Lord. And we've already seen that whenever the cloud would rise up and move, they would be required to follow. And I point this out so that we don't get the idea that Moses was making executive decisions as to where they should go. Instead, the picture is that God would move and Moses would ensure that the people are obeying God's commands and moving in proper order. See, I can imagine him urging God's people, time to pack your tents. It's time to get ready for the next stage of the journey. I mean, look, he would say, God's on the move. We need to follow. And so they do. And now following this procedure, they come to a place called Rephidim. As before, we can only guess about where that place is. You know, Numbers chapter 33, it's a chapter that recounts the stages of Israel's journey through the wilderness, but it gives us no clues as to where it is. And so even though theories abound, I'm happy to say I just don't know where it is. But wherever Rephidim is, they got there. And as was the case when they came to Marah, the place of bitter water, there's no water here to drink. At least they might have said, well, back in Marah, there was bitter water, but now there's nothing, no water at all. Our text then says, the people quarreled with Moses. Other translations say, they protested against Moses. Now, either one of those translations is interesting. So to quarrel gives the idea that some of the leaders of Israel ended up in a heated, knock-down, drag-em-out fight argument with Moses. 
I imagine yelling. I imagine accusations. I imagine statements were made about his deficient leadership. No one was trying to spare anyone's feelings. Now, if protest is the proper translation, well, I can almost imagine the people holding placards and saying, we don't want to follow you anymore. We want an election. We want someone else. I'm taking the time to describe this scene because, as we've seen, Moses didn't lead them to Rephidim to the place of no water. No, no. God led them there. I mean, perhaps Moses was surprised as everyone else as the water reserves are running dangerously low, and now he sees where it is that God has led them. Moses, like them, has been following God. And it's here in the middle of this argument, they make a demand. You give us something to drink. And Moses, in frustration, says, why do you quarrel with me? And then he makes a statement that I can only read as a a heated accusation. Moses asks, why do you test the Lord? Now, later on, when Moses was close to the end of his life, the book of Deuteronomy, it records his final sermons to the people of Israel after leading them for 40 years. So listen to part of that sermon in Deuteronomy 6, 14 to 16. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroys you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Don't worship other gods, hoping they'll do for you what you perceive God isn't doing for you. That's called testing God. That's saying that God's power isn't enough. It's throwing aspersions on his character. It's is saying, we don't trust God to do what we think the idols might be able to do. Now, Moses in Deuteronomy mentions Massa. This is this place. He could have also mentioned the prior incident in Marah. I mean, why would you say to God, you don't know what you're doing. You're leading us to a place where we're going to die of thirst. Why are you casting aspersions against God's character? It's a law. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You might remember that Jesus quoted this very verse when he was in the desert fasting for 40 days. The devil had come to tempt him, telling him to you know, jump off the highest spot in the temple and to see whether the angels would rescue him. Jesus had then said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. When Jesus spoke against testing the Lord, he meant don't act in such a way as to question the wisdom of God or the power of God. 
or to act in such a way in which you think that you can force God to do something that you want him to do. What's the alternative? Look, when you get into trouble, what are we to do? Two things. Find the promises that God has given you and content yourself in the truth that God has integrity. He's never going to make a promise that he won't keep. And second, plead with God for mercy. Lay your case before him. Find confidence in the truth that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Do that. Of course, Israel at Rephidim, even though they'd been taught that lesson in the past, they seem to have learned nothing. In their desperation for water, they forgot. And so they go to Moses. They demand he produce a miracle and give them water. And in response, Moses tells them, don't test God. Don't you demand a miracle. See, demanding a miracle, that's always sin. We might humbly request one, but we may not demand that God act in the way that we determine he must act. And so as we've already noticed, the people seem determined to test God. And God seems determined in this second incident of water to test them. Let's go back to our text, Exodus 17, 3 and 4. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up? out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So notice the implication. In desperation, they now charge Moses with evil intent. And please remember, it's clear to everyone, it wasn't Moses that brought them to Rephidim. God had led them there. They'd seen that. But as before, you know, their unrestrained anger made them not care what way it went. You know, they're not blaming God, they say. We're blaming Moses. Well, is it because they're afraid of God? That's why they're not blaming God? Well, perhaps. Or is their anger directed at the one they can see as opposed to the one they can't? See, at this point, the entire exodus is in question. They're saying, Moses, you should have never showed up in Egypt with this harebrained idea of yours to convince us that the covenant with Abraham about being a holy nation unto God or about the promised land, we shouldn't have believed you because all the while you didn't have a good plan. Following you meant we're going to die. We were fools to trust you. And so in desperation, Moses is crying out to God. His first cry is that he confesses that he doesn't know what to do at this point in time. He can't control the people. He can't direct them. He can't lead them. What shall I do? You know, is Moses angry at this point in time? Is he desperate? Is he simply asking or is he expressing that he believes that there is nothing to be done? He's just frustrated. Well, we don't know. But his second cry to God helps us to put everything into context. Moses knows that right then he's one step short of death. The rancor is so great, one little spark will lead to stoning. There are many times in the Bible when leaders among God's people have been stoned to death. You know, in Ziglag, after David's family and the family of his followers have been taken captive, the military men in David's troops spoke openly of stoning David to death right on the spot. And there's a fascinating account about the early days of the kingdom of King Rehoboam. Now, he was King Solomon's son. He was a young man, and he made some crucial errors early in his reign. And he sends a man by the name of Adoram, who is the taskmaster over forced labor, to go up and whip Israel into line. And they stoned him to death. And then they were looking to stone the king to death as well. There's also that in the New Testament. John 10, verse 30, the Jews threatened to stone Jesus to death. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem. 
Acts 14, 19, the apostle Paul is stoned. The people stoning him thought he was dead. Thankfully, Paul survived. Now, I mention these events so that we might know that the history of Semitic peoples is that they're not averse to stoning a leader to death. It's not a misguided fear that Moses had. This is a real possibility. And the stones in that region, they're not smooth rocks. They're rocks with hard edges. They gash right through skin and they break bones when they hit. Moses knows this whole adventure of leading the people to the promised land, it's about to end right here, right now. Or is it? You know, is God also testing Moses? Moses needs more confidence in God. The trial of a lack of water and everyone's temper on edge has led Moses into the valley of fear. So at this point, God intervenes for his promises won't fail. Now to verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. In short, God's telling Moses, act like a leader and not like a coward. Call a number of the leading elders, leading men of the nations to stand with you right now. Then take the staff of God in your hand. Now, that's the staff that once turned into a snake and then back into a staff. That's the staff that struck the Nile and it turned to blood. He had stretched that staff over the rivers and frogs came up. This staff was stretched over the dust of Egypt and gnats came forth. This staff was stretched up toward heaven and hail came down so large it killed livestock and fire was mingled with the hail. And this staff was stretched over the Red Sea when it divided. It's not a magic staff. The staff didn't do anything, but the staff was a ruler's staff. It was the symbol that God had placed leadership into the hands of Moses, that Moses was God's man. Again, God's telling Moses, act like a leader. God has called you to be a leader. Stop quaking with fear that they might stone you. Take the ruler's staff. Tell the elders to follow you. Walk on before that place of confrontation and go exactly where I tell you to go. These are great words. You know, be what I call you to be and do what I call you to do. And again, important words. If you're a leader, no matter what the people threaten to do, keep your dignity. Be secure in the calling you've received. Act like the person that God called you to be. And if they stone you, they stone you. But don't you be a quivering man. Rather, if they're going to stone you, may they stone a man of certainty and confidence. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So up till now, we've been told that the location of this incident was at a place called Rephidim. But now we're told that the rock that Moses struck with the staff was at Horeb. And we also know that Horeb and Sinai, as in Mount Sinai, those two words are used interchangeably. And that leads us to wonder, is Rephidim actually at the base of Mount Sinai? Well, I have no reason to think it is. Indeed, Horeb is not only used as a synonym for Mount Sinai, but it is most likely a region that is the region where Mount Sinai is located. So how large is that region? And I suppose for our purposes, could the people see Mount Sinai from Rephidim? I don't know. At any rate, it would seem that there's a prominent rock in that area. Moses is leading Israel, its leaders and its people, to this prominent rock, staff in hand. He's not arguing with anyone anymore. It requires faith. God says, go strike the rock and water will come out. And so in faith, Moses does what God tells him to do. 
and water comes from the rock enough to form a large enough river to allow two million people to drink along with their cattle. So what's the lesson to be learned from this this latest debacle? Verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Massa means testing. Meribah, quarreling. The place was named testing and quarreling so that people would never forget what happened there. So what's the lesson? Well, Psalm 95 is a psalm calling for God's people to praise God. He's a great king who rules all things. And then in verse 8 of that psalm, the psalmist counsels people who are praising God. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. And then the psalm goes on to say that it is the very act of unbelief that finally led God to condemn that entire nation to wander in the desert for 40 years. And then the book of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 tells New Testament believers that's the same lesson we need to learn today. Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 and then applies it. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then Hebrews goes on to warn about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then it repeats the warning, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, that is in the rebellion at Rephidim. And that's the lesson about testing God. Who do you think you are that you can test God? You should lay aside your sin. You should lay aside your unbelief. You should not question God's leading. Rather, you should submit to God's leading. That is the lesson of Rephidim. Thanks so much, John. Uh, A quick question, maybe not an easy one, but a quick one. How do we as God's people test God today? Yeah, man, I think we test God in so many different ways, but we test him more uh, when we demand that he does something for us in order for us to believe him. And, And you might say to yourself, well, I don't do that, but don't you? I mean, there are many times you tell God you're disappointed because he didn't do things in the way that you mandated that he should. And uh, rather than, you know, sitting back and being thankful for how God's dealing and in anticipation of wondering what God will do in the future or looking at a present situation and saying, God, what are you doing in my life? Uh, Instead of that, we continue to make demands. And when we make demands, we're always testing God. We ought to know we're on the wrong track. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements 
that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.